I want to welcome you again today. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor here. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, we're in the middle of a new series through the book of Philemon. Uh, so Philemon is a little teeny tiny book in your New Testament. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to go ahead and start looking for it now because sometimes it's hard to find. Uh, it's right after 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, uh, right after Titus, and right before Hebrews. Uh, normally when people are flipping through their New Testament, they kind of stumble on the book of Hebrews because it's a little longer. You want to go back toward the beginning and you'll find the book of Philemon. Um, it is, uh, uh, this is the second in the series. It's a four-part series. And last week I started by reading the whole book to you, but today I'm only going to read uh, the verses that we're focusing on this morning. And we're beginning in verse 8 of the book of Philemon. So if you have your Bibles open and you're ready to go, Beginning in verse 8, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, gotta love that start off, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are about to open your word. And so, Lord, we ask you to open our minds to understand. We pray that you'll open our hearts, that your word will convict us and encourage us. And Lord, we pray that in your spirit speaking to our hearts this morning, you might give us the courage to live according to your word in the name of Christ. Amen. I've probably done it myself a number of times, and you've probably heard it before from preachers at pulpits like this. The line goes something like this, what would you be willing to lose for the sake of Jesus? What would you be willing to lose for the sake of Jesus? It's a hard question. Well, it's not really a hard question. I mean, because we all know the right answer, don't we? I mean, it's hard because we know that the right answer, that is the answer we want to give, the answer that we hope we would give, won't be what really happens to us, that we'd be willing to lose everything for the sake of Christ. Now, <clears throat> probably a better question would be this, what are you willing to risk for the sake of Jesus? 
Well, that question's a little easier. It's hard in and of itself, but it's a little easier because at least with risk, there's a chance that the worst won't really happen. As I already said, today we are in our second message in this four-part series on Philemon. And I just want to uh, remind us again, uh, if you were here last week, you'll remember some of this. If you weren't, we just want to catch you up a little bit. Uh, Philemon is a book, a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Philemon. Philemon lives in a town called Colossae, which is in Asia Minor or present-day Turkey. And uh, Paul is most likely in prison in a city called Ephesus, which is about 100 miles from Colossae, about a week's journey by foot, and uh, uh, all in Turkey. Ephesus is over on the coast. Colossae is sort of in the middle of Turkey. And uh, uh, Philemon is a wealthy Christian. Uh, The church meets in his home, and he owns a slave. And the slave's name is Onesimus. And we don't know the background of why what happened happened or what was the issues that led up to it. But we know that Onesimus escaped. He fled. And uh, we're pretty sure that uh, when Onesimus left, that he was leaving to go look for Paul. And he finds Paul in Ephesus, and Paul's in prison because Paul's been preaching the gospel. And when Onesimus finds Paul, Paul witnesses to Onesimus, and Onesimus becomes a Christian. And that's where we pick up with this story. And so now Paul finds himself in this really interesting spot, and it's a spot that probably every single one of us have found ourselves in. Maybe not to the same degree or severity as Paul, but it's this kind of spot. Paul knows what the law of Rome requires. He is, after all, a citizen of the empire of Rome. Paul is. And he knows the law of Rome, but he's also a Jew, a Pharisee, a teacher among the Jews before he became a Christian. And so Paul also knows the law of the Hebrew people, or what we commonly call the Mosaic law, or the law of Moses. And so this is Paul's situation. He's sitting in this jail cell for the sake of preaching the gospel. This man has escaped his Christian master and come to him. Paul shared with him the gospel. Onesimus has received Christ as his Lord and Savior, And now Paul has to decide what to do with Onesimus. Now, we all have been in those situations where the law of the land and the law of God and the the message of the gospel kind of come together in this perfect storm, this this eternal conflict. So, So let me just sort of break it out for you a little bit. Because each of those laws has a fairly clear uh, action that is prescribed upon Paul. According to the laws of Rome, Onesimus, the guy who escaped slavery, the slave, is to be arrested. He is to be returned to his master, Philemon, and Philemon is within his rights to do whatever he chooses to punish Onesimus. He can set him free, 
He can beat him uh, unto an inch of his life, or he can have him put to death. Roman law allows for that. And Roman law requires that any other person who finds a slave is to immediately return that slave to their owner. Now, now, if, if we're right that this is uh, being written somewhere around the year 52 A.D., about 100 years prior to Paul writing this letter, Rome had endured not its first, not its second, but its third slave revolt. Historians call this the Servile Wars. And the third slave revolt was led by a guy named Spartacus. Y'all have probably seen the movie. And after that war, a war which, by the way, almost ended the Roman Empire, Rome enacts laws to try to prevent this from ever happening again. And some of those laws are laws about how slaves can be treated, that they have to be treated well, they can't be beaten for no reason, those sorts of things. Mm. But the law also states fairly serious uh, sanctions for slaves who escape so that slaves would be reinforced at staying in slavery. Paul's duty as a citizen of Rome is clear. But Paul has this other law that's in his mind, and it's the law of God. Now, I'm not even talking about the gospel yet. We're just talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. Because even though the Hebrew Scriptures uh, talk about issues of slavery, and there's a lot of, lot of that. If you're in small groups, you're going to be looking at some of those notes that are in the study guide. If you're not in a small group, I encourage you to get in one. If uh, you say, well, that's all fine and well, but not pastor, but I'm not going to do it. Okay. Well, there's handouts that are out uh, in the foyer on a stand just to the left of the Welcome Center. Uh, on, this, on, on this side of the Welcome Center. Pick that up because there's some articles online that you can read to learn a little bit more about slavery in Rome and slavery under the law of the Hebrews. But there's a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that a lot of folks don't know, but it's a pretty powerful verse, and it goes like this. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he should choose, that is the slave, within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. So here we go. We got the law of Rome and the law of the Hebrew people in direct opposition of each other. What is, what is Paul to do with Onesimus? Well, here's what he does. Paul violates Scripture. Now, I put that in there on purpose just to irritate some of you. It's a phrase that we don't like to hear. And I have read this book all my life, all my ministry. I've preached on it before. It always has been, it is, and it shall always be a problem for me. Because as you can infer Paul chooses to send Onesimus back to his master in direct opposition to what the Hebrew Scriptures, the Mosaic Law, says. Now, I don't know about you, but I was always taught to obey the laws of the land 
unless they conflict with the laws of God, in which case I am to obey the laws of God. And if that leads to my being punished, so be it. I should accept it. This is a biblical ethic. We are called to obey the laws of God over any other law. But, frankly, the application of that admonition to only obey God's law over human law is generally just in cases of idolatry. What that means is, is well, we live in a society where you know, we're not required to worship any particular gods or, or pay taxes to any particular god or, or to offer incense to any particular god, but that wasn't the case in the ancient world. And the Jews oftentimes found themselves in situations where the laws of the land, the laws of the government, said, you can keep your religion to, to Yahweh, Jehovah, to God, but you have to pay taxes <clears throat> to the pagan temple or you have to burn incense to the pagan gods, and if you don't, we'll, be, we'll put you to death. Countless stories in the Old Testament uh, about how this happens and where this happens. And God's quite clear. You may not sacrifice to pagan gods. You may not burn incense to other gods. You do not, as followers of God, acknowledge even the existence of other gods. But the slave laws are a little bit less clear. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, I mean, my goodness, this last slave revolt was a hundred and some years before this ever happened. Yeah, but, but remember, Rome's been around now for 800 years. And will be around, depending on how you count it, anywhere between 1,000 and 1,500 years. It is one of the longest reigning empires in the world and the longest empire in Western civilization. There's a long history. Now, can you imagine what it's like? Put yourself in the position of Onesimus that you have just fled your master to whom you were a slave. You've come to the guy who you think can probably do you some good. And Paul then outlines a course of action that he is asking you to do. Are they risks? Or is Onesimus giving up something for the sake of Christ? Well, what are the risks? Well, first of all, Onesimus risks his own execution. Now, 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 I understand, I understand. I can see how Paul is sitting there with Onesimus, and uh, maybe Paul said to him, look, Onesimus, I've written this letter. Now, I want you to take this letter and take it back to your master. Once he reads it, I'm sure he'll set you free, or he might put you to death. But if he puts you to death, then I can guarantee you will probably excommunicate Philemon. Can you imagine? Onesimus think, well, la ti da that doesn't help me any. Maybe, just maybe, as Onesimus has had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, it begins to dawn on him that his Savior, Jesus Christ, who enjoyed the eternal place of honor as the second person of the triune Godhead, gave up his freedom and became a slave for the sake of Onesimus. And he didn't just risk death on a cross, he endured it. Now, if the folks who say that Paul wrote this letter while in prison in Ephesus, if they're right, that means that this, this, this encounter that Paul has with Onesimus predates his writing the book of Philippians, the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, all three of which rely heavily 
on this image of the work of Christ. Now I'm going to read to you from Philippians chapter 2. Are you ready? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now some of you might be saying, man, that sounds familiar. And some of you others are saying, well, I know why it sounds familiar, because Pastor Ike just preached on it four weeks ago. Isn't that what all of you were thinking? You remember me saying that, don't you? So you also remember that I said to you that that's a horrible translation of that text. Because as I read to you, when Paul was outlining, it's translated as Paul, that, that, that Jesus took the form of a servant. And I shared with you that in the original language, there are two words that are often translated servant. One of those is the word diakonia, where we get the word deacon, which means servant. And that carries the idea of somebody willingly serves somebody else. But there's another word that's often translated servant, and it's the Greek word doulos. And doulos, there's nothing voluntary about it. Doulos most accurately is translated slave. So what Paul is really saying here in Philippians chapter 2 is that Jesus Christ gave up equality with God so that he would take the form of a slave being born in human likeness and and being obedient even unto the point of death. Now maybe Onesimus realized that if Christ gave his all, it wasn't a difficult leap for Onesimus to give his all. Because in his act of returning to Philemon, he might be a part of Christ saving Philemon. Now that's easy for me to say. But what is at stake for Philemon? Does Philemon have a risk as well? Because in this situation, as Paul is trying to discern what he's going to do with Onesimus, this slave who has escaped his master. And as he prepares to send this slave back to his master, potentially to continued servitude, potentially to his death, is there something even greater at risk? Paul struggles with this, I'm sure. Onesimus struggles with this, I'm sure. You and I struggle with these kinds of ethical decisions every day, to be sure. Now, I'm not intending here when I said Philemon may lose his soul of having a conversation with you about eternal security or the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, but this much is certain. Philemon has a decision to make, and it's not going to be an easy one. You know, they say that there's a few things that you should never do. You should never get between a mother and her child, right? And you should never get between a man and his pride. I'm kind of talking down to to, to our fellow brothers here, aren't I? But I'm right there with you, fellas. Can you imagine what's going on in Philemon's mind? Perhaps that's why Paul made this personal letter public. It's a personal letter, but it's not private. It's public. Other people are reading this letter. Other people are seeing this letter. And other people are going to be looking at Philemon, seeing what he does. Because sometimes we need the support of others to make the right decision. Paul says this as much in verse 8. 
Look at verse 8 with me. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. You see, the struggle is not only is Philemon risking the losing of his own soul, there is a benefit, and that is as Philemon is free to make the wrong decision. Now, in the same way that Paul found himself confronted with the perfect storm of the Roman law, the Mosaic law, the gospel, Philemon has a similar situation. His non-believing neighbors are watching. The church is watching. The leaders of the church are watching. What risks are involved from Philemon? His culture, like our own, isn't always sympathetic to the Christian perspective. You see, don't forget, Philemon's slave has run off. That is, he's embarrassed him. Philemon has experienced his own servile revolt, just like Rome has. His pride has been damaged. And most likely, because this journey takes about a week from Colossae to Ephesus, Onesimus needed money, and more than likely, Onesimus probably even stole food and money from his master Philemon. If Philemon puts Onesimus to death, his non-believing neighbors will respect him. They may have thought, well, this Christianity thing is kind of strange, but old Philemon, he's not all that different from us. He makes the same kind of decisions we make. Even though I don't want anything to do with the religion, I'm perfectly fine with the man, Philemon, because he makes decisions just the way we do. He values the same things we value, things like greed and pride and revenge. He doesn't do foolish things like turn the other cheek or forgive and forget or or set the person free who had wronged him. He doesn't do crazy things like that. Can you imagine what Philemon is dealing with in that moment? If in his heart, as he reads Paul's words, he hears also the voice of Christ. A voice that you and I have heard countless times in our life, unless we have become practiced at ignoring that voice of Christ that speaks to the depths of our hearts and the depths of our minds. Listen again as I have taken liberty in verses 8, 9, and 10. And let me reread you those verses as if Jesus himself is speaking to you and to me. Though I am bold enough as Jesus Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Jesus, the ancient of days, and the one who was made a slave for your sake, I appeal to you for my child, my children, whose father I became in the tomb, and through my resurrection have made you all brothers and sisters in my name. And so here stands Philemon. And Philemon is beginning to slowly realize that what the world calls useless, 
God calls useful. The world's a vigilant taskmaster, brothers and sisters. The world exacts its expectations on us, and it demands that we act according to its expectations. You see, here's the thing. When we fail to rise to the ethic and morality of God's law, of the scriptures, of the gospel imperative, the world doesn't have to be confronted with the perfection of who God is. When we conduct our lives and form our opinions the same way the world does it, then the world doesn't have to do anything with Jesus Christ. The world doesn't have to consider their own hearts, and they can revel in their own darkness. They can have their own selfishness validated. They can celebrate their own lusts and their own vices. And when we give in to that, or worse, when we validate through our actions and our opinions and what we say is no different than what the world says, we convey that the opinions of darkness and the world are consistent with Jesus Christ. That's what we say. We affirm by our actions and our words that some are worthy of consideration for what they give, And others are useless for what they're not able to bring. Now I'm going to make, I think, every single one of you angry with me. When the world dismisses the gift of new life as a choice, there's a problem. And when the world says to a refugee fleeing their country because they claim the name of Christ... As a burden, there's a problem with that. When we dismiss humanity, regardless of where they are, what they have done, when we say they're not made in the image of God, we, like Philemon, find ourselves in a situation where we could lose our very soul. Now, I use those two examples on purpose because I'm pretty sure that most of those two examples are relegated to one side of the political spectrum or the other, and my goal was to make every single one of you ticked off. Because it isn't the left or the right that we're called to be faithful to. It is Jesus Christ. And when we are called to live faithfully to Jesus Christ, that is by its nature going to put us in opposition to the world. Now, I can imagine that perhaps, although now that I'm going to say this, this probably won't happen, I can imagine that if somebody might after say, now, preacher, pastor, you, you, you started mixing politics and the pulpit. You shouldn't do that. I wonder if there was somebody in the church in the time of Paul made an appointment to go to the prison. <laughs> that right there is hilarious. Made an appointment to go to the prison to meet with Paul and say, Paul, I heard about your letter to Philemon. 
that letter was a little too political. Slavery is an established custom here. You know, just don't be messing with that stuff. Just let, let, let's let, let live and, and get by and, and let, let, let's not upset people. Let, let, let's not convict them. Let's not make them feel uncomfortable. You see, the truth is, is, is that faith is not just something that's private that we keep in our spiritual lives and our house. Listen, if our spirituality does not motivate us to some sort of action, some sort of just living, it's worthless. And it would be best if we just didn't come to church. Let me tell you something else that I think is fantastic here. Are you ready? The name Onesimus, the name actually means useful. You want to know something else? The Romans had a pejorative, derogatory word for slaves. Y'all know what that is. Need some examples? How about this? Redneck, hick, hillbilly. These are the ones that I've heard over my lifetime. I'm not even talking about the racial slurs. I'm not going to dignify those, mentioning those here from this pulpit, this sacred space. But y'all know what I'm talking about. And there was a pejorative derogatory term that all slaves were called back during the Roman times. You know what that word was? Useless. Some of us might have heard that word from parent or a teacher. It was a word that was meant to keep people down. And all slaves were derogatorily referred to in the first and second centuries as useless. Now, are you ready for this? More than likely, Onesimus had been a slave since he was a baby. And more than likely, according to Roman custom, his mama was a slave. And here's the powerful thing. His mother, when she held that newborn baby, knew what he would be called the rest of his life. And she gave him a name. Not useless, but Onesimus. Useful. His very name is a statement against the injustice that that mama knew her son would deal with the rest of his life. And it's the same thing that God, our Father, has done to us. When the world has called us useless, when the world has called us foolish, God has said to you and to me, you are useful. Because what we view as loss, God uses for gain. You see, Paul ends this section of the letter with this phrase. For this perhaps is why he was imparted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and to the Lord. You see, what Paul does right there is he redefines the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, just like Jesus Christ redefines the, relate, the name that you and I have, the relationship that you and I have. The noted author and preacher N.T. Wright summarizes his reflections on Philemon with this. 
The reason for it all and the method by which it all had to happen were contained in the gospel itself. The gospel, after all, is not a simple message about how people get saved in a purely spiritual way. It is about the lordship of Jesus, the king over the real world, over people's lives, over the difficult decisions that real people face. And you see, brothers and sisters, what Mr. Wright is alluding to is is that the fact we have a king, and his name is Jesus, And life must be lived in the light of his reality and the ethical expectations of his kingdom of grace and mercy and truth and peace and love. And unlike so many other situations in life where we may be willing to risk something, with King Jesus, you and I are called to lose everything for him. Everything. Why? Because he lost everything for you and for me. And we gained everything because of his loss. Father, too often we fail to see the price of our own redemption. Too often we take light of the burden you carried for us. Too often we dismiss the truth of your love. We are forgetful people. Remind us this day that you bore the weight of our burdens on the cross and have made us free. In the name of Jesus. Amen.